Hello and welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, today's lecture, Regulating Chemicals in the Environment, is an attempt to take you through uh, perhaps a lot of your civics uh, history here in the United States. Uh, for international students taking the course, uh, you can rest assured that most developed countries and even some undeveloped countries have similar laws and regulations on the books. Uh, there have been throughout uh, the most recent history, at least in the, in the last uh, uh, three or four decades, uh, tremendous development in the regulatory infrastructure and the laws and regulations associated with how we as humans interact with our environment. The purpose of today's lecture is to give you an overall briefing of, of how that process uh, works. For many of you, uh, this might uh, present a tremendous amount of new information, especially with regards to concepts like administrative law, the type of law that drives, for instance, permitting like the NPDES permits that we talked about in a previous lecture. Our learning objectives here today what we're going to have you do is try to be able to understand the drivers and some of the processes in environmental law development. The dissatisfaction of the status quo, the outrage perhaps that we saw developing from Silent Spring and how that predicated some of the actions and activities of the constituents for elected officials in terms of changing the way we do things, changing the way we relate to our environment and modifying behaviors that were uniformly regarded to be negative impacts on the environment. We'll try to have you understand a structural summary of how U.S. federal government works, how this legal system works. Uh, again, for international students, uh, this might be new material for you, and you might see some similarities to the way we conduct governmental operations to that in your own country. We'd like to also have you understand a structural summary of how laws, regulations, and more importantly, policies are made. I think most of us kind of understand the relationship of elected officials and the drafting of laws. What perhaps is less clear for most students at this level is the interaction of those laws and everyday behaviors. And this typically is at the policy and regulation level. We'll try to have you also be able to understand some of the fundamentals of administrative law. And for most students, this is a relatively new area of inquiry uh, and understanding. We'd like to be, you to be able to list the major U.S. environmental laws, not necessarily with their statutory citations, but they get a sense of when these environmental laws came uh, to, to uh, consequence, our recent environmental history. And we'll show you some graphics to su suggest that perhaps the last uh, three decades or so have been extraordinarily active, and we get uh, incredible levels of activity even today in modifying these laws many of which were version one, the first time that we attempted, for example, to, to uh, legislate or to regulate hazardous waste uh, occurred in the 70s and the 80s. We had a tremendous amount of history and production of hazardous waste before that, but with new laws, new approaches to managing our behavior, we find, for instance, that there is an evolutionary response to better ways to manage those behaviors through regulation. We'd like to actually have you explore some of these key environmental laws that interface with various levels and issues of concern in environmental toxicology. So we'll focus on the ones that are most important perhaps to this particular course of study. And then we'll finish up focusing on the Clean Air Act. And we'll use a case study to understand some of the historical development of air quality regulation in California. 
uh, will show you that, in fact, environmental activism back in the 1940s actually predicated in California, predicated national regulation. Uh, California currently is about the sixth largest economy on the planet, a fairly substantial sized uh, country, perhaps. And they have had a history of, per, of uh, in the United States, leading the development of environmental law. Well, to first start, uh, what are the uh, relationships of the environment and the U.S. law? Well, we need to understand that statutory development paralleled the environmental movement. The environmental movement perhaps uh, gained speed in the past uh, century, in the 1900s. It started really coming to play with the advent of environmental activism and concern in the 1960s, perhaps sparked uh, by individuals like Rachel Carson. The environmental laws uh, had a little bit of an origin in the human food chain and food and drinking water uh, safety analysis. When we looked out at the better living through chemistry that we were uh, witnessing in the post-World War II decades, uh, when in fact the development of uh, pharmaceuticals, antibiotics, plastics, if you will, and many other industrial chemicals, appeared to make our life easier, yet we did not have sufficient life cycle assessment of the products themselves, but more importantly, we didn't have significant amount of assessment of the waste product stream coming out of the manufacturing processes. We were finding in the 50s and 60s and, and to a degree in the 70s that these processes were in fact damaging our environment, having an impact on the human food chain, and having an impact on drinking water safety. We've lost the old-fashioned, out-of-sight, out-of-mind disposal uh, mentality of waste management. Uh, back in the old days, uh, sometimes it was even a government uh, authorized and recommended solution to waste management to just dig a hole and bury it out of sight, out of mind. That is no longer acceptable because we now know the consequences, for example, the consequences to groundwater. And in a certain sense, the past few decades, we've been paying the cost in terms of environmental cleanup for some of the actions that occurred decades earlier. We have also changed uh, the way we uh, uh, deal with each other in terms of our relationships, our fundamental property rights, and our rights to clean air, our rights to clean water. We no longer have uh, a situation where upstream polluters are allowed to damage the resource that is consumed by downstream users. So there are fundamental rights issues, and in fact, as I indicated, the NPDES program, which gave us a permit to pollute, a permit to pollute under critical levels, an important issue there, um, but for the first time actually legislated this new right that uh, we had in terms of controlling the uh, fishability and swimmability of the nation's waters. We also needed new scientific knowledge uh, and developed that uh, with the developing developments in science in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And this increased public awareness of some of the impacts on the environment. So in a certain sense, our environmental consciousness of the constituents here in the United States uh, were uh, enhanced, increased. And with that environmental consciousness, gave great concern about quality in terms of public health quality as well as environmental quality. 
Now, what drives the creation of uh, environmental law? Uh, some of that uh, can be directed towards fundamental rights and freedoms under the Constitution. There are federalism issues. I have addressed this a couple of times in terms of state control versus federal control. But pretty much what recent uh, Supreme Court decisions, decisions in the past 30 years, have given us is a background in law such that anything that involves interstate commerce, it's the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution, actually gives the federal government the ability to manage the environments even within state boundaries. There have been, uh, over the course of uh, recent history, various shifts in political power, uh, various shifts in power in terms of uh, an educated population, an educated uh, individual. So there, there actually has been a development of informal power, uh, the power of the pen, if you will, in some cases, in terms of environmental activism. There has also been the power of uh, the dollar in certain uh, buying solutions, uh, uh, being able to uh, navigate uh, the regulatory morass uh, a little bit easier because you've got the resources. Uh, in some cases, uh, this has been a struggle back and forth. Uh, and one has to reflect that, at least with what we have now, the environment has been an overall winner when one compares it to the environment in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, we have also seen various evolutionary developments and quantum leaps. These evolutionary developments sometimes come to us through new science. The new science of the ozone hole gave us the ability to manage a human behavior, which was the use uh, and perhaps the abuse of chlorinated fluorocarbons that had an impact on the atmosphere. That actually gave us the political energy, if you will, to be able to manage that behavior and restrict the use of those damaging chemical compounds. We've had in the past decades development of a lot of science, the science of toxicology and various uh, societal desires. Uh, we don't want to put up with bad air. Uh, this has uh, gotten uh, a tremendous amount of uh, inf uh, work in the past uh, century in terms of just because I happen to be uh, a, in an individual or a family that lives uh, as a working class uh, and perhaps uh, lives closer to the factories that I don't have to put up with uh, worse air than perhaps people that live in the nicer parts of town. There's the concept of environmental justice. We've seen over the past decades as well of various uh, levels of dissatisfaction with the status quo, uh, perceptions uh, of risks as well as real risks as new science and new analysis comes out in terms of how we have related and continue to relate to our environments in terms of our production of waste, our production of contaminants, and our release of that waste and contaminants into the environment. This graphic gives you uh, a very uh, dramatic uh, diagram of the progression of U.S. environmental laws <coughs> since 1940. On the uh, year axis here from 1940 to the year 2000, you can see that this is the cumulative number of environmental laws, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. These are the major branches of U.S. environmental law. 
uh, we can trace it back to FIFRA uh, in uh, the early 1950s in terms of the modern generation. There were some management of uh, safe food and even water uh, back in the 1920s, but the major U.S. environmental laws typically took place in the late 1960s, and we had a, 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 a exponential uh, rise, and we can pick out a few of these, the Clean Air Act, uh, FIFRA amendments, Federal Water Pollution Control Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act in the mid-1970s, uh, the Clean Air Act, uh, CERCLA, RICRA for hazardous waste management, and up here in 1996, the Food Quality Protection Act. So in a certain sense, our behaviors, due to the fact that we have had regulatory changes, have had to change dramatically over the past 30 years. In a certain sense, this change has led to a, a tremendous amount of discussion and sometimes loud debate on the impact of all of this new environmental law over what is in, uh, in many regards one generation's uh, worth of uh, uh, the uh, country's uh, history. And so this is a certain sense why I will say that uh, several times here in the course that we are typically dealing with first generation or in some cases second generation environmental law. There is the opportunity to make it better. Uh, in terms of creating a higher degree of public health and environmental quality. But the debates, the political push and shove in terms of changing what many regard is a good system to make it better, uh, most people would like to make sure that in changing it to make it better, we don't happen to actually make it worse and less protective of public health and the environment. Now we have to, to understand how these laws were made, have a, uh, a good background understanding of legal system fundamentals. This is the basis of environmental law creation, administration, and the compliance infrastructure that in fact mandates uh, uh, the uh, behavior changes that we have observed in terms of our relationship with the environment. One way to look at this is looking at this uh, organization chart. Uh, again, this is uh, a civics uh, in high school for most students in this class. But as a refresher, we have three branches of government here in the United States. Under the Constitution, it's the legislative branch, which is Congress. We have the executive branch, which is uh, the president. And then we have the court system, the judicial branch of government. In the judicial branch, it actually starts in terms of federal government. There is a federal district court. Uh, a case heard in federal district court can be appealed in the Court of Appeals. The final appellate level is the Supreme Court. It uh, works in the other direction in terms of the executive uh, branch. The executive actually politically appoints uh, via the president heads of administrative agencies. So there's political appointment here. Administrative agencies administer the law. For example, EPA is an administrative agency, the Environmental Protection Agency. And for example, one of the bodies of law is pesticide law that is managed by uh, EPA. And so that will be managed in the Office of Pesticide uh, Pollution Prevention, uh, Pesticides and Toxic Substances, and the Office of Pesticide Programs. In the legislative branch, we have a bicameral legislature, which means there is a House and a Senate. Uh, the House is more representative. The Senate has a uh, unique uh, two representatives per state. 
to come together to form a law, and typically laws are roughly written uh, levels of regulation, but they will come together in conference committee before voting and passing on a final law that both houses of the legislature agree in. Now, laws can, in fact, be extraordinarily detailed in terms of the, the uh, uh, description of allowable or restricted behaviors. Uh, often, they do not, and it has a lot to do uh, with politics. It also has a lot to do with just the level of specificity for each particular behavior. We have a fundamental concept in U.S. law, and that is equal treatment under the law. And so what happens is we tend to try to write our laws to be somewhat general, but then what we do is we let the administrative agencies actually develop the rules and regulations that allow for that law, that general law, to be applied to very specific situations. We'll see more of that here in a moment. In uh, the legislative branch, once Congress does pass a law, and that law can be, for example, the Clean Water Act or CERCLA for hazardous waste or the Toxic Substances Control Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, it actually gets signed by the president and handed off to an administrative agency. That administrative agency, such as EPA, such as USDA, will write the rules and regulations that will, in fact, impact the regulated community, typically those that are involved in behaviors that interface with the, that overending law. So, for example, if I am a waste, hazardous waste generator, I will be impacted by uh, CERCLA or RICRA, the two hazardous waste uh, regulations. Now, in terms of the relationship between states and uh, the U.S. federal court system, we can typically have a situation where a state district or a trial court will actually hear an argument. That decision may get appealed up through the state uh, uh, judiciary system up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court at the state level is not the court uh, of uh, last concern. That can actually move then over to the Court of Appeals on a federal basis. Uh, finally, those decisions can be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And so there are many hearings in terms of an individual that thinks they are not getting a fair decision uh, at the state level or even at the appellate level in the judicial system. Now, there is a branch of law called administrative law, and this typically is associated with what happens at the agency level in terms of uh, rulemaking and administration of the laws that are handed to them by Congress and the executive branch. They have two uh, fundamental roles. One is rulemaking, and this is the issuance of regulations. And so this, in a certain sense, is the fine print. Uh, if Congress passes a law saying we must uh, protect endangered species, uh, quite often the agencies are involved in the particulars of how we go about doing that on a case-by-case -case basis. Typically, rules have very precise language. Uh, they sometimes uh, appear in the Code of Federal Re Regulations, the CFR. Uh, there is a, a quasi-legislative uh, aspect to this in the fact that they are interpreting and customizing, if you will, the law 
to adapt to particular situations that, that may arise. This is a very important part, and you can see that because the agencies have political appointees, quite often there is a political battle in terms of the actual movement of administrative law advisories, the rules that are made on a case-by-case -case basis. Agencies also have adjudication responsibilities. These are quasi-judicial activities, and this is where they actually apply the regulations and standards to particular cases. And so when you request a permit for discharge of your wastewater stream, an NPDES permit, you would be applying to a federal agency such as EPA, the Office of Water within EPA. They would grant you a permit in this particular case. They would adjudicate your permit application, judge if it's worthwhile. They would do the science background to see that, in fact, it is having minimal or no impact on the environment and make a decision that, in fact, is a quasi-judicial decision. There are other types of agency action. This informal rulemaking, uh, sometimes there is a public notice uh, that uh, there is a, a way or a mechanism of enforcing this particular law. There is an opportunity to comment. Uh, this is an extraordinarily important feedback system uh, in our uh, U.S. regulatory law system. I uh, give you an idea, this informal rulemaking is associated with granting certain sorts of actions associated with standard, standardized rules and regulations. So for example, uh, in the informal rulemaking, permitting can be uh, considered to be an informal rule on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, for example, if a mining company uh, wants to uh, open up a mine, there will be a rule saying yes or no, you can open up and operate that mine. There will be public notice, there will be opportunity to comment. Uh, now with the days of the internet, this has gotten uh, tremendously easy to do. Uh, I know of one case of a company, uh, in fact this was a mining company that uh, wanted to increase the amount of lands that they were mining in that single application uh, to uh, the agencies concerned, there were over 50,000 public comments. And so this is an important part of citizen action, citizen activism, uh, in terms of interaction with uh, the rulemaking associated with executive agencies. These agencies also have formal adjudication uh, processes. These are trial-type procedures. Uh, in fact, these can involve discovery, cross-examination, and full record to make some decisions. Here in the state of Idaho, we have had uh, water rights adjudication uh, in terms of the Idaho Department of Water Resources on the state level, adjudicating who had the prior rights to uh, tapping groundwater resources primarily in the southern and southeastern part of the state. Uh, so there is a court type or trial type procedure of adjudication in this process. Now in terms of uh, administrative law, the judicial branch is sometimes the uh, court of last appeal, so to speak, in terms of agency action. If in fact you disagree with an action that the agency has, uh, the court will look, in fact, to see that uh, the agency had the authority, but court 
judicial uh, courts actually typically defer to the agency as fact finder and expert. And so they don't question the agency scientists. They want to make sure that the scope of the agency authority was appropriate, that there was procedural compliance, and that there was adequate evidence. Essentially, the judicial underpinnings uh, of the process were, in fact, intact and reasonable. Now, there can be court review of agency uh, action. Uh, this is primarily in the informal rulemaking and adjudication type processes. Uh, courts, judicial courts, want to find out if the uh, rulemaking was arbitrary and capricious. Uh, there can be a formal proceeding. Uh, and in some cases, uh, the judicial system, the courts and the judicial system, will actually uh, demand a trial de novo, a new trial, a new process, essentially vacate uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, administrative law ruling uh, associated with uh, agency action and start it anew. Now, in our legal system, we have two types of law. This is common law and statutory law. Uh, common law is, derives its authorities from judgments and decrees of courts. Uh, they're not from uh, legislative enactments. Uh, we find that torts, which are the lawsuits uh, that we all hear about, injuries and harms done to people, uh, to, or a private civil wrong or injury, is uh, the uh, common law uh, interface that we typically hear most about. In this process, the court provides a remedy, and this typically is in damages. Um, this is typically a financial award in common law. Statutory law, or the King's Law, these are legislative enactments. Uh, these are federal rules and state laws. Uh, they're rules and regulations of uh, state agencies, which are a body of statutory law. Legislatures will prescribe civil uh, conduct and provide uh, various civil and criminal remedies if, in fact, uh, you violate uh, this. The way we look at that is, um, for example, in a contamination of a water, and this contamination led to some sort of physical injury or contamination, perhaps a fish kill or uh, a degradation of a drinking water resource. Uh, there are two uh, major pathways, again, common law. There can be a lawsuit. This can be on the basis of nuisance, negligence, or strict liability. Uh, there can be uh, payment of medical bills, and there can also be uh, punitive damages. Uh, these are the large-scale uh, lawsuits, uh, financial award lawsuits that you read about in the newspaper. In statutory law, it can be taken on as a civil action or a criminal action, and, and uh, depending upon the law, uh, occasionally both. In the civil action, uh, there can be, under, for example, the Clean Water Act or CERCLA, Safe Drinking Water, Clean Air Act, uh, there can be a, a demand to restore the property, and there can be civil penalties, typically uh, fines associated with that. Sometimes it crosses into, uh, for example, uh, a felony criminal uh, action, depending upon how the law is written. And so that can actually uh, mean imprisonment as well as fines, again, as a punishment for a certain behavior. Now, these behaviors are managed by the development of environmental performance standards. And in the law, you will find technology-based standards and ambient standards that define uh, levels, uh, for example, maximum contaminant levels uh, of, uh, associated with uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act. In technology standards, <coughs> sometimes these are used, for example, in the Clean Water Act and NPDES permitting. 
They define uh, acceptable levels of discharge, uh, some sort of emission or effluent uh, limitation. Uh, you will find codified in the Code of Federal Regulations specific technology standards for specific types of effluents. And so we can actually, <coughs> excuse me, look into these uh, uh, regulations and actually see specific levels that are modified uh, on a probably almost annual basis depending upon new science uh, and new technology development. There are also ambient standards that are development. These specify uh, various uh, minimum conditions. They can also expose, uh, impose <coughs> a quality requirement on the receiving air or water in terms of uh, if this, in fact, is an impacted water system, the amount of pollution, uh, the increase that is going to be allowed on an impacted system is significantly less than perhaps uh, those uh, that uh, are uh, only moderately impacted. Uh, if, in fact, this is a blue ribbon uh, a water body, a blue ribbon stream, uh, non-degradation becomes an important part of the uh, regulatory law impetus. Some of this can be harm-based. Uh, are you degrading? Are you harming, uh, for example, drinking water resources? Now, in the United States, we've had a flurry, as you saw in that one graphic, of the development of major U.S. environmental laws. I'm going to recite them here on this uh, uh, list just to give you an idea. Uh, you've probably all heard of the Endangered Species Act. This is a continuous lightning rod because uh, it is uh, very demanding in terms of the action and activities if, in fact, a species is declared endangered or threatened. That came to us in 1973, the year I graduated from high school. The Clean Air Act uh, came to us in 1970. Um, we're going to spend a considerable amount of time towards the end of the lecture talking about the development of the Clean Air Act and, and the California pollution, Air Pollution Control Authorities. Uh, the Clean Water Act came to us in 1977, uh, and this was because many of the waterways in the United States uh, were actually highly degraded, especially uh, the working rivers. Uh, and in fact, in the late 60s and early 70s, as we discussed, uh, there was a tremendous amount of concern that uh, these waters were being used uh, for as a dumping ground for industrial pollution. Up until 1980, we really never had a way or a tool to manage historical hazardous waste, yet historical hazardous waste, meaning that companies or situations had developed historically, sometimes decades earlier, that left us with a large mess. The companies are no longer there, but in fact, some of the responsible parties we're still there in terms of how resources are handed off in terms of the financial and corporate world. In 1980, we had the development of uh, CERCLA or the Superfund law. This allowed uh, the federal government to go back and trace the uh, joint and several responsibility parties uh, associated with the hazardous waste to do a historical assessment of actions and activities that might have happened decades earlier and actually uh, by uh, judicial authority and federal authority in terms of uh, cleanup force those individuals to actually pay for the current cleanup. The Superfund uh, until 1996 was actually managed uh, by a tax on chemical companies and oil producing companies. Uh, it actually uh, was allowed to go away at that point in time. Right now, Superfund is primarily financed by taxpayer resources. 
EPGRA, the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, uh, gave us uh, some of the ability to know what's happening in our own communities. Uh, through EPGRA, we know uh, what risks are in our communities in terms of the storage of hazardous waste, uh, industries that might use tremendously large amounts of flammable solvents, for example. All of that information is, in fact, uh, now codified uh, and available a lot of times. That's online information. We've talked at length about FIFRA and its origins in the early 1900s. FIFRA and its uh, most current version came to us in 1972, but we did actually modify that in 1996 in terms of the Food Quality Protection Act. NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, we'll talk about this here in a little bit. The Freedom of Information Act gave citizens of the United States the ability to actually find out what was happening in terms of relationships between our federal government and the various uh, permittees, industries, relationships uh, back and forth. And so what this act did was give us sunshine, for example, in terms of uh, the communications uh, back and forth and the uh, adjudication of various uh, permits uh, for pollution. OSHA gave us the ability to manage uh, workplaces and work, worker safety uh, in terms of exposure limits. Uh, these are often associated with airborne uh, chemicals uh, in the workplace and the use of personal protective gear in the workplace. The Oil Pollution Control Act gave us uh, the ability to manage our coastlines a little bit better in terms of uh, 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 restricting certain activities in terms of the oil trade. The Pollution Prevention Act in 1990 actually gave us uh, the ability to identify and reward industries that reduce and recycle their internal waste byproducts. RICRA is one of the major hazardous waste, is the major hazardous waste uh, management act. Uh, RICRA in 1976 gave us the ability to adopt what is referred to as cradle to grave management of hazardous waste. So as a generator, small quantity generator or large quantity generator of hazardous waste, you now own that. Uh, you can't uh, hand it off uh, to a middle party and have them assume responsibility and authority for that. You uh, as a generator have to develop a manifest. Your name goes on that manifest and follows that hazardous waste wherever it goes. In 1974, we had the advent of the Safe Drinking Water Act, which was for communities larger than about 25 connections. Uh, Safe Drinking Water Act uh, establishes maximum contaminant levels for primary and secondary drinking water contaminants. The other major hazardous waste uh, management uh, uh, authority comes to us from the Superfund Amendments and Reauthorization Act, SARA. Uh, this is uh, part of CERCLA, the Comprehensive Environmental Response uh, Act. This came to us in 1986. TASCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, we talked about briefly in terms of its management of some uh, uh, types of materials. It manages new chemicals that comes on the marketplace and restricts those that are highly toxic such as the PBTs. So for example, uh, PCBs are managed under the Toxic Substances Control Act. Now I told you we'd uh, go through a couple of these uh, in terms of focusing those that uh, have the most uh, importance in terms of principles of environmental toxicology. 
NEPA has a purpose to ensure that all federally administered uh, or assisted projects are conducted so as to take in the environmental impact uh, into their activity uh, into consideration. This includes federal activity as well as private activity that requires federal licensing. For example, if I am going to construct a dam, uh, to dam a river that happens to flow through private property, that would need a federal license. NEPA requires environmental impact statements. It's an important part of uh, environmental law and development. The environmental impact statement uh, must uh, accompany all uh, proposed uh, legislation, major federal actions that significantly impact or affect the environment. The EIS uh, includes uh, a statement, and these documents typically are telephone book size. Uh, uh, they require a tremendous amount of research about the uh, uh, aspects of uh, an action. It lists any environmental adverse effects uh, associated with the action uh, that cannot be avoided. It will list alternatives to the proposed action, typically including the do-nothing alternative. Uh, it describes the relationship between uh, various local short-term use and demands of this particular environment and maintenance of the environment for long-term productivity. And it also describes the irreversible and irretrievable commitment of resources with this particular development. Uh, these are fairly, uh, again, uh, well-developed documents and analytical documents, typically looking at all of the aspects. Uh, for example, uh, if we were, again, referring to that dam construction, it would talk about the changing flows, impacts to fish and wildlife, but also impact to communities, archaeological resources, uh, community structure, transportation, uh, water quality, and, and all of these other issues would be analyzed in these somewhat lengthy documents. The Clean Water Act uh, came to us as the Federal Water Pollution Control Act in 1972. Uh, the was amended in 1977, 1987. A key concept in the Clean Water Act is the development and maintenance of fishable and swimmable waters, in this case by 1983. Clean Water Act did, through the NPDES program, have a tremendous uh, uh, impact in terms of mitigating and eliminating discharge of pollution into navigable waters. We, in terms of communities, manage that discharge in our municipal wastewater treatment plant, so all students actually have a part uh, in the permit program associated with municipal wastewater treatment because we all flush. The Clean Water Act has a goal of maintaining and restoring the nation's water. The key issues associated with those are controlling toxic discharges, uh, wetland regulation, uh, wetland regulation primarily in determining what a wetland is and what it is not. Uh, the control of non-point sources, uh, uh, primarily uh, uh, these sources associated with urban storm drain runoff. Uh, there are sources such as agricultural uh, runoff of pesticides and fertilizers. And as well, the Clean Water Act seeks to restore low flow streams. Clean Water Act yields, uh, gives us ambient water quality standards. There are in the listings of the Clean Water Act national technology-based effluent limitations. Uh, these are also yield uh, deadlines for compliance. 
There are provisions for citizen lawsuits, and this is a very, very powerful tool. Uh, this is uh, a situation where an individual, a citizen, can file a lawsuit based on a violation, a damaging of the uh, uh, water resource. Uh, there is a policy for groundwater pollution and for non-point uh, water pollution. There are, f as well in the Clean Water Act, uh, financial grants uh, for municipal wastewater treatment to assist communities in uh, upgrading and maintaining their facilities. So there is a federal support system. You'll see this especially in smaller communities. It does manage point sources, again, primarily through uh, development of NPDES permits. And there are best practical technologies, best control conventional technologies, and best available technologies that are proscribed in the Clean Water Act and all of the federal regulations associated with the Clean Water Act for particular industries that have certain types of proscribed waste streams. In the Safe Drinking Water Act, it gives us primary standards for health protection, these MCLs, or maximum contaminant levels. These contaminant levels are regulatory standards, so if they are exceeded, uh, you will get, for instance, a bottled water order. And so these maximum contaminant levels do offer some element of health protection for citizens that are regulated. What does this mean, by the way, in terms of unregulated uh, water resources? If you live on a farm and you drink uh, your own ranch water well, uh, you are not regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. If you live in a small uh, housing development uh, in a rural area and there are less than 25 connections, you are not regulated typically by the Safe Drinking Water Act. And so there is uh, compliance issues in terms of perception of water quality by folks that are out in rural areas. There are some secondary state regulations for aesthetics. Uh, if you have stinky water uh, or iron tasting water, so it's typically taste, order, odor, and appearance uh, uh, standards for these uh, aesthetics. There are some controls for underground injection of contaminants in terms of waste management. Uh, primacy in the Safe Drinking Water Act is typically delegated to states. I believe there's only one state uh, that does not have primacy. Uh, primacy means that the state actually manages the uh, compliance with this particular federal uh, body of law and regulation. That primacy also comes with resources, financial resources, to support those regulatory activities. FIFRA, we've discussed at length in terms of uh, the use of pesticides in the human food chain as well as public health uh, poisons uh, such as uh, antimicrobials and rat poison, rodenticides. We reviewed at length in our uh, pesticide case study uh, special topics course, the FQPA, Federal Food Quality Protection Act. Um, we looked at pesticides as economic poisons uh, and public health poisons. In terms of FIFRA, there is a uh, required registration of use. Uh, this registration activity is a very expensive activity because it requires a tremendous amount of data collection. Uh, this can typically cost tens of millions of dollars. This uh, risk assessment activity will detail uh, some of the procedures associated with uh, a risk assessment. TASCA came to us in 1976. It covers some of the toxic substances that are uh, already covered, uh, not covered by the Clean Air Act and uh, the Clean Water Act and FIFRA, things like PCBs. 
It does give us health and environmental data requirements for various chemicals and mixtures. Uh, these uh, pieces of information must be uh, provided by manufacturers. So as a new chemical comes online, uh, the associated toxicity profiles need to be submitted under TASCA. Uh, there is an authority to regulate chemicals with unreasonable risks, such as PCBs. Uh, there is, within TASCA, uh, at least of a regulatory sensitivity mandated to uh, that uh, in reviewing toxicity of chemicals that we are not uh, manufacturing uh, incredible economic barriers to uh, manufacturing and to other sorts of industrial processes. Uh, EPA under TASCA can uh, impose restrictions on use, manufacturing, and labels. And so, for example, uh, how certain chemicals get manufactured, like 2,4-D, uh, which is a common herbicide, uh, EPA through TASCA can uh, actually mandate that that manufacturing process, the synthetic process, is of a certain type and quality so that other compounds, such as dioxins, are not cross-produced as a waste product in that particular compound synthesis. RICRA, or the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, uh, gives us a very strong tool in managing and disposing of new uh, or uh, solid and hazardous waste. Uh, the uh, 1976 amendments to the Solid Waste Disposal Act uh, came to us in 1984, the Hazardous uh, uh, um, and Solid Waste Amendments. It includes hazardous waste, municipal waste, which is our landfills, uh, hospital waste, and underground storage tanks. USTs, or LUST, or LUST, uh, leaking underground storage tanks were a big issue in the 1980s. Almost every gas station in the United States had to have their tanks uh, dug up and replaced with double-lined monitored uh, uh, gasoline storage tanks. In a certain sense, there's uh, many older gas stations that have been around for decades. You can drive onto their property and see monitoring well caps. You can see pump and treat stations. Uh, these are some of the residual activities associated with cleanups from LUST or leaking underground storage tanks. There are key issues, the land ban, which uh, mandates that certain types of chemicals cannot be disposed of on land. They require, they present such a great risk in terms of contamination of groundwater. Dinoseb, an herbicide, for example, is a land ban chemical. Uh, it does uh, have developed uh, critical pathways uh, and uh, permits for incineration and combustion disposal. It does mandate waste minimization. It does prevent the development of hazardous waste sites because it mandates that as a hazardous waste generator, you own it, you manage it, and if you are a large quantity generator, you are actually inspected in how you manage and document your hazardous waste generation. You cannot avoid liability if you are a hazardous waste generator. The concept of cradle-to-grave tracking of generated hazardous waste is a key concept. RICRA does manage hazardous waste. It actually lists or defines uh, various types of hazardous waste. So you can go into the Code of Federal Regulations and look up the F list, which is nonspecific sources. And so there'll be a list of chemicals. There'll be K list and as well uh, PNU for specific sources and commercial products that might be considered to be uh, hazardous waste. We can also 
essentially identify, in a generic sense, hazardous waste from its characteristics, whether it's corrosive, reactive, ignitable, or toxic, as defined by a leachate from a solid substrate. And so these properties uh, that are, are, are described uh, in the regulation itself, if your material has any of these properties, it can be classified as a hazardous waste. Now, one of the things that uh, students ask, what happens if I take a hazardous material and I dilute it uh, down, put it in with an innocuous substance like sand, uh, is it still a hazardous waste? The answer to that is yes. If you combine a listed waste with some other material, in fact, a non-toxic material, it still is regarded in terms of the uh, regulations as a listed waste. It can also be a material that is derived from a listed waste. Now, there are some exclusions. We as homeowners are not uh, regulated in terms of our household waste. Uh, we try and do that uh, essentially on the honor system, uh, recycling used motor oil at the recycling center, making sure that paints and pesticides for home use don't get into the normal trash uh, in terms of uh, getting into landfills where they can leach into aquifers. Agricultural waste or fertilizer uh, is not uh, managed or it is excluded under RICRA. Recycled materials, point sources under the Clean Water Act, various small quantity uh, generators uh, can be exempted uh, from this. And small quantity is actually uh, uh, can uh, be something that is uh, debated in terms of each individual or des des described in terms of each individual generator. Uh, typically, that is um, defined as a 100 to 1,000 kilogram per month, less than 100 days and 80 days holding, and that there's expertise on site. Uh, if you're less than a small quantity uh, generator, you're conditionally exempt. There'll still be pollution prevention uh, coaching in terms of managing those wastes. As I said, RICRA does manage underground storage tanks. It also manages municipal landfills under what's referred to as Subtitle D. Hazardous waste is regulated under Subtitle C of RICRA. CERCLA is the other body of law. This body of law gave us the ability to clean up historical uh, waste sites. This is the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, CERCLA also CERCLA SARA in terms of the Superfund authorization amendments, in terms of how to pay for that. <clears throat> there are some key issues associated with this law. This is, uh, has had a history of legal complexity, a uh, tremendous amount of uh, cost delays and the stigma of being declared a Superfund site. Uh, the issue of public involvement in remedy selection, uh, the uh, aspects of allocating liability, joint several liability, has also uh, been a sticky issue associated with CERCLA. Now, for example, if a, um, a landfill is declared a Superfund site, anyone that has used that landfill uh, can be regarded under the joint and several liability acts of uh, CERCLA. And so, for example, uh, and this has been uh, a, a case study that has been cited several times, a troop of Boy Scouts that does a cleanup uh, of uh, 
some some park, and they happen to take some of this material and, uh, as they should, take it to uh, a dump site. If that dump site is found to be a uh, uh, hazardous waste uh, uh, regulated under CERCLA, uh, in fact, under joint and several liability, uh, the lawyers, the federal lawyers, could come knocking at that Boy Scout troop. Um, this is the uh, exception to the rule in terms of tracking down uh, the true uh, waste generators, but in terms of how uh, the courts regard uh, this participation in this site, uh, they are uh, have been actually uh, described as de minimis contributors and typically walk away without much more than a letter. It came to us uh, in terms of CERCLA in 1980, the Superfund authorization, uh, reauthorization amendments 1986 and 1990, and it was 1994 that Congress failed to reauthorize uh, the development of Superfund in terms of a tax on oil and chemical production in the United States. Some of the history and objectives, the impetus for the development of this was risk to public health from hazardous waste sites because up until this time, and this is relatively recent history, existing law did not address these abandoned sites. Some of them had been actually leaking uh, hazardous waste into the surrounding ecosystems uh, for decades. It was designed to meet and respond to uh, past disposal practices, and this is in contrast to RICRA, which is current uh, operating manufacturers, uh, industries, release of potential hazardous waste. Superfund and uh, CERCLA give us what is recall, uh, referred to as the NPL, or the National Priorities List. When you look at the uh, numbers associated with these historical sites, how do we review them, classify them, and grade them so that we are working on the clear and present danger sites first uh, in terms of cleanup and mitigating harm? Uh, these determine, the NPL determines priorities or release or threatened releases uh, across the nation. There is something called the National Contingency Plan uh, that is updated annually in terms of these lists as new sites are discovered, for example. The criteria in terms of listing on the NPL and uh, a high number listing on the NPL will make sure that you get a tremendous amount of attention for your site. Uh, some of the criteria include the extent of the population at risk, some of the hazards uh, associated with uh, the site. Uh, the contamination of uh, drinking water is a big risk factor. There's a threat to ambient air criteria and as well a hazard ranking system in terms of just how toxic this material is. Well, as it turns out, as we were developing CERCLA, about 40 million people in the United States, about 40% of the U.S. population, actually lived within about four miles of a site listed on the NPL. This was in 1990, uh, as this law was actually in its earliest stages of being executed in terms of the number of cleanups. This is a tremendous challenge in risk communication because in a certain sense, federal authorities were showing up in white bunny suits, uh, perhaps uh, at the uh, industrial site next to your community. What was the risk to my community? Uh, what was exactly happening? And in some cases, concern that the solution was worse than the problem itself. This came about, for example, in, in on-site incineration of some of the wastes. In terms of the scope, uh, in the early stages, about 44,000 sites were assessed. Uh, about 11,000 became active on the uh, national priorities list. 
and there are about 1,500 proposed or final or deleted uh, NPL sites, uh, meaning they had gone in, managed it, and uh, these are mid-1990 numbers. There were 7,000 removal actions at about uh, 5,000 different sites, and so the scope of activity across the United States was pretty significant, as was the cost of this activity. Since 1992, responsible parties, uh, and this is through legal action, uh, performed about 70% of the new remedial work on NPL sites. Uh, so this was through legal pressure, uh, the threat of lawsuits. Uh, one of the key concepts in CERCLA is the, the allocation of what are referred to as treble damages or triple the fine, triple the cost. If, in fact, EPA says you are responsible for this cleanup and financing the cleanup, and you go to court about that and you lose, you will pay as a fine triple what the cost was. And so this is a huge motivator for responsible parties uh, that, in fact, are held responsible to actually uh, execute a cleanup. These various settlements, uh, 1999 uh, statistic was that uh, the settlements uh, totaled about $16 billion, obviously a lot of court uh, uh, actions and activities and a tremendous amount of employment for environmental lawyers on both sides of the cases. There were 430 de minimis settlements with more than about 21,000 small waste generators. These de minimis uh, agreements are things like, okay, in terms of uh, adhering to the, to the to the uh, regulation, the Boy Scout troop would be perhaps of concern and they would be listed as a generator, but they would be written off as a de minimis. They really didn't have an impact on the overall hazardous waste generation. Uh, to total, um, as of the late 1990s, EPA states and tribes have assessed over 44,000 sites. So this has been a huge undertaking. Uh, if you look at all of the assessments, the chemical monitoring, the development of remediation strategies, uh, the construction, the mobilization, demobilization, and then the return of those resources back to uh, the uh, future use, uh, those same sorts of future uses we dealt with in our risk assessment lectures, uh, this has been a tremendous amount of national activity. In terms of regulating these hazardous wastes, it's not a bad idea to compare and contrast RICRA and CERCLA. RICRA, again, is new waste generated. There are some uh, regulations for generators and the ultimate treatment storage, TSD, treatment storage and disposal uh, sites uh, for waste. Uh, there are, across the United States, uh, highly regulated hazardous waste management sites. Uh, these sites are licensed. Uh, typically, they're in areas like deserts uh, where there is no groundwater issue, uh, uh, high degree of uh, precipitation. Uh, they're stored on site, sometimes in triple-layered barrels. Uh, sometimes they're incinerated or managed or detoxified on site. Uh, RICRA also manages the, the uh, companies and individuals that transport hazardous waste. Now, Circle Superfund focuses on remedy past uh, and frequently abandoned waste sites. Uh, it does seek to impose liability on past generators and disposers. Sometimes uh, there can be a two-pronged uh, management, uh, a site that is active, is actively managed in terms of waste management by RICRA, but there might be on that same site some historical contamination which needs to be managed under Circle Superfund. And so there can be a crossing of both of these on any particular site. Now, it is interesting to compare the CERCLA substances, which is a 
technical legal term in CERCLA law with RIC or WACE. We talked about all the different uh, wastes that are actually listed in the Code of Federal Regulations for RICRA, the listed waste, the characteristic wastes, uh, the mixtures of wastes. As it turns out, circular hazardous substances, another term, uh, legal term, is actually a term that envelops the defined wastes from RICRA, but also include other, by reference to other statutes, uh, wastes, for example, in the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And so typically this is a more generic definition of things that, may be, that might be hazardous or toxic. Finally, we're going to talk about and finish out the lecture today with a fairly involved uh, discussion of the Clean Air Act. We're going to do this because uh, here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, we've tended to focus on uh, uh, foodborne uh, intoxication. We've focused on waterborne intoxication. Uh, we haven't talked that much about uh, toxicants that uh, might come to us through uh, the atmosphere. The Clean Air Act came through us uh, in 1967, the Air Quality Act, and then the Clean Air Act in 70, 73, 77, 82, and 90. And so it gets continuously amended in terms of new sources and new approaches to managing clean air. It has an overall responsibility for preventing and controlling air pollution, uh, and it's primarily uh, designated as a responsibility of state and local government. So there are federal dollars in terms of assistance and leadership. Uh, the law does create a list of air pollutants and national ambient air quality standards. As someone who grew up uh, in the 50s and 60s before the Clean Air Act, I can remember in New York, we lived in the suburbs just north of New York City, I can remember the smog days. I can remember the burning eyes on bad, bad air days. I can remember going to uh, cities and not being able to see the tops of the skyscrapers because of the smoggy air. I can testify to you that, in fact, the Clean Air Act and its uh, regulatory motivations have had a dramatic impact on clean air in the United States. The Clean Air Act does have the goal of maintaining and restoring the nation's air resources. The key issues associated with uh, the development of the Clean Air Act were non-compliance of most of the metropolitan areas. It took years to be able to change behaviors, to increase uh, the efficiency of automobiles and decrease their emissions, to develop the new technologies for uh, maintaining and minimizing industrial uh, airborne releases. Uh, there was uh, a tremendous amount of development of what exactly are air toxics and trying to list those and manage those under the Clean Air Act. And there was also a development of what's the best way to do this in terms of developing a cost basis for all of these activities. One of the approaches in the Clean Air Act has been uh, an early adopter in terms of market incentives. Uh, if, in fact, um, a company uh, via a new factory, a new process, or a uh, change to their air control facilities, upgrade their technology and reduce their pollution, if they reduce it below the required standards, they can actually sell their pollution credits on a market. Uh, to those industries that may not have the adequate financing at that particular time in their uh, company's history to finance all of these technology upgrades. And so this market incentive has encouraged people to actually reduce their emissions even below regulated standards. 
Now, there are, under the Clean Air Act, primary and secondary standards for carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, NOxes or nitrogen oxides, ozone gas, uh, hydrocarbons of various kinds, uh, various particulates, and lead. Uh, as it turns out, the U.S. Supreme Court is now hearing a challenge to states that would like to manage CO2 and greenhouse gas <coughs> development uh, through their state regulatory apparatus. The federal government uh, and EPA have interpreted that, in fact, those regulations to mitigate uh, greenhouse gases are, in fact, go beyond the scope of the Clean Air Act. So I would imagine in the next year or so, you'll be able to see if, in fact, the Clean Air Act does, in and of itself, manage uh, this great concern for future greenhouse gases or whether or not that concern is going to have to be managed through perhaps citizen outrage and legislative enactments and uh, final executive authority. The Clean Air Act does require <coughs> excuse me, a state implementation plan, an SIP. Uh, this will deal with uh, vehicles and monitoring stations for pollution coming out of your tailpipe. Uh, what kind of uh, emissions come out of stacks and uh, non-attainment areas in terms of municipal areas within states. Clean Air Act does establish vehicle emission standards for, for manufacturers. Uh, manufacturers are interstate commerce. There was a goal of a 90% reduction of emissions uh, by 2003. Uh, we got pretty darn close to that. I believe it was in the high 70s. Um, there was, uh, as well in the most recent uh, versions of the regulatory standards, an elimination of ozone-depleting chemicals uh, by the year 2000. And under the Montreal Protocol, this was largely achieved. In terms of a case study, uh, California has led the nation in terms of uh, concern about air pollution. Uh, this has a lot to do with California geography and some of the early outrage uh, in Southern California. On bad air days uh, in Southern California, you can still see uh, atmospheric haze develop. Uh, there is a certain amount of uh, uh, landform and uh, natural processes that contribute to, to capturing uh, uh, air and airflow currents and pollution in these uh, bowls and valleys in Southern California. Uh, we do have a long history of air pollution events. Some of these have cost uh, uh, great loss of life uh, around the world. Uh, there have uh, been deaths uh, and, as well, uh, the uh, cost to uh, destruction of uh, even buildings, uh, agriculture, uh, and uh, uh, human disease and illness. There has been a legislative response, again, primarily due to the outrage of citizens, as a democracy works best in this kind of uh, development. Uh, there was, uh, in the early understanding of air quality and uh, atmospheric science, uh, a uh, development of uh, the linkage between ozone and air pollution. Uh, there have been some uh, significant regulatory events. Uh, also, since the 1960s, we've changed our culture and attitudes about acceptance and tolerance uh, of uh, in, uh, environmental damage. We now have uh, some concerns about costs and effects. It's not only the cost in terms of human health, but also the costs and damage uh, to industries, for instance, agricultural productivity because of deposition of air toxics on plants. Uh, we do have the development of uh, current ambient air quality standards and achievement challenges in many municipalities still to this day. 
Now, in terms of the history of air pollution, it's not you. There, there has been, uh, in terms of our uh, geological history, natural and non-human uh, air pollution, uh, volcanic activity, um, man, um, uh, natural uh, made fires uh, associated with uh, lightning strikes, for example. Uh, emissions from vegetation and animals. We talked about the Blue Mountains or the Smoky Mountains of the United States, where, we, in fact, these are petroleum hydrocarbon secondary chemical compounds, terpenoid compounds, uh, that uh, are actually emitted from these plants. Uh, there can be non-natural human impacts, uh, fires for various applications, cooking, heating, and agriculture. Uh, in the northern parts of uh, this state, we still have field burning uh, for agriculture for production of grass seed. We did uh, have a fuel switch to coal. Coal is a very compact uh, energy source in the 19th century. Coal, unfortunately, especially certain types of coal, have a tremendous amount of uh, air pollution as seen in the particular image on this photograph. We did, with the Industrial Revolution, also uh, find that we had industrial emissions, and especially in concentrated urban industrial areas, tremendous amount of potential uh, air quality degradation due to these emissions. And with the development of widespread use of motor vehicles, we have uh, a concomitant increase in air pollution from those internal combustion engines. The first control was uh, England's Edward uh, I, uh, who actually uh, demanded an, uh, a, uh, that uh, a certain type of uh, coal uh, that was high sulfur uh, be banned from use, not necessarily because of its smoke, but because of the stench, the sulfur stench associated with uh, the use of this made people sick. Uh, we talk about uh, how we manage uh, those uh, 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 from a regulatory standard uh, in 1273, the fine, if you will, the punishment for using sea coal, as it was called, <coughs> was actually uh, beheading or hanging. In the 19th century, we had the development of smoke nuisance ordinances, uh, as you can see in this photograph, uh, in certain climactic conditions, like as inversions. Uh, this could uh, develop a tremendous amount of air pollution and degradation of air quality at ground level. Uh, there were smoke control ordinances in the late 1800s as well. We had some critical events that developed in terms of our historical air pollution in the 1930s in the Mayus Valley <coughs> in Belgium. We saw, excuse me, <coughs> a uh, uh, an amount of sulfur uh, that was being sulfur dioxide that was being emitted from industrial processes. Uh, this ended up with 60 dead and thousands sick in 1943 in Los Angeles, California. There was an air pollution event <coughs> that will be described uh, in the video. Uh, visibility was reduced to three blocks. There was numerous uh, complaints, watery eyes, nausea, and respiratory discomfort. In 1948, in Donora, Pennsylvania, again, a, a sulfur dioxide uh, inversion. Uh, 20 people uh, and thousands of animals were killed. Uh, about 6,000 people uh, became ill. In the 1930s, in London, England, uh, killer fog from industrial processes, about 4,000 dead. 
these are substantial uh, losses of life as well as uh, a substantial amount of injury to individuals. These are typically uh, highly motivating in terms of uh, response of populations and outrage uh, in terms of community action and legislative action to limit behaviors, to limit the potential for emissions. This uh, picture gives you an idea in terms of what uh, Los Angeles looks like. This will be dealt with a little bit more in the video. In this uh, 1943 uh, event, uh, there was uh, the cause was linked uh, in Los Angeles to a butadiene plant, um, but the problem did continue. So this was an uh, exacerbating, uh, uh, perhaps contributor to the overall uh, air quality. But at that point in time, uh, it was a mixture of industrial processes, uh, the high degree of automobile traffic in the urban areas, as well as just uh, air dynamics. In 1947, the governor in California actually signed the first air pollution law in the United States. Uh, this was a dramatic impact. Um, it came about because uh, there was a tremendous amount of science and research that was being done. Uh, what is atmospheric pollution? What are the atmospheric chemical processes that go about? There was a certain amount of need for discovery in the same way that we needed to discover the mechanisms of the ozone uh, hole, uh, the hole in the ozone layer in the 1980s. Uh, the legislative events associated with the development of uh, California Air Control uh, Legislative Authority came about through tremendous amount of citizen pressure. Uh, this is a 1940s photograph, and what you see uh, primarily is men in suits uh, with uh, gas masks on. Uh, the sign on the wall, which is barely legible, says, you know, why wait till the 1950s to fix this problem? We need to fix it now. Uh, this is not what we would perhaps consider to be environmental activism, but this country has had a tremendous history of environmental activism. In 1947, the California Air Pollution Act, Control Act was actually signed by uh, Governor Earl Warren, who uh, came to later fame as a Supreme Court Justice. In 1959, there was additional legislation that established the authority, uh, the ability of California to develop ambient air standards and controls for motor vehicles. Uh, to this day, when you buy a car, you will see California standards uh, uh, on that uh, sticker as well. In 1961, uh, there were auto emission control requirements in 1963, and so uh, we had a significant amount of time, uh, almost 20 years between when California passed their laws and we had our first Federal Clean Air Act. 1967, then Governor of California Ronald Reagan established the Air Resources Board, uh, and this helped to coordinate California air pollution activities. In 1969, the first California ambient air quality standards were developed. Now, one of the reasons that we had a degradation of air quality in California was, and across the United States, was due to population growth and uh, the uh, uh, increase in industrial processes and motor vehicles. Um, there were, in the 1950s and 60s, a tremendous amount of effort uh, on point control, uh, backyard burning incinerators, burning at dumps. I remember uh, growing up in New York, uh, uh, it was very common to rake your leaves, uh, put them in a pile, and burn them, uh, for example. Uh, uh, little did we know we were contributing to overall degradation of air quality. 
we also saw the electric trolleys were being replaced by buses, and the interstate highways were now being packed with these uh, automobiles uh, that at that point in time had very limited or no air pollution control. The Federal Clean and California Clean Air Act uh, started coming to us in the late uh, 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, this is uh, the 1970 Earth Day celebration, the first Earth Day celebration, uh, perhaps signaled uh, the watershed event in the development of an environmental consciousness in the United States. Uh, we still celebrate uh, Earth Day in the United States uh, every April. Uh, in recognition of uh, the environment. In terms of the federal and California Clean Air Act in the 1970s and the 1980s, environmental activism actually pushed this uh, legislation. So we saw the Federal Clean Air Act in 1970, uh, revision in 1977, in 1987 the California Clean Air Act, and in 1990 the Federal Clean Air Act, which modified and strengthened the federal approach to management. In terms of some of the effects, uh, if you were to look at it from a California perspective, uh, in terms of the health care costs, $90 million per year, uh, air pollution does affect children, uh, the elderly and the ill. It increases asthma, bronchitis. Uh, there is a 10% lung loss in LA children uh, by the age of 18. Uh, this comes from autopsies uh, after death, uh, from early death. Headaches, nausea, anemia, reproduction problems, birth defects, and premature death. I've seen uh, 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 slides or photographs of lung tissue of kids that have grown up in LA, uh, and I can say that in some cases, at least, uh, uh, these look like uh, the lungs of a coal miner. In agriculture, there is a $700 million per year estimated damage. You've got to remember that California agriculture is a multi-billion dollar, I think it's about $30, $35 billion per year, so this is a significant loss. Crop damage uh, was documented as early as uh, 1948. Internationally, uh, cities with heavy air pollution like Mexico City, Athens, and Greece uh, have documented crop losses in surrounding areas due to air pollution uh, in recent events. There is a commercial loss as well in terms of air pollution. Uh, this commercial loss is because uh, many of the air pollutants are actually uh, significant as oxidizers such as ozone and so rubbers and uh, rubber materials, tires, uh, industrial uh, buildings, uh, commercial buildings, even residential buildings. The paint, uh, the, the faces on these buildings uh, and machinery actually uh, degrade faster than they should. In terms of California, there was a development of ambient air quality standards. Uh, uh, we had, for example, the development of maximum acceptable average concentrations of various air pollutants. Uh, there were ozone, ozone standards uh, that were developed in terms of how much for how long. Uh, there were bad air day alerts, smog alerts, uh, if in fact a certain amount of uh, concentrations exceeded, were exceeded over a period of time. Uh, bad air alerts would uh, be accompanied with recommendations to reduce physical activity, to stay inside, uh, stay away from uh, exposing yourself, especially if you were elderly or infirm or had uh, reduced health uh, situations. 
The next thing we'll do here to finish up is show a short video. Um, these videos uh, contain a significant amount of historical footage. I think these videos uh, are useful in terms of educating students about uh, our environmental history. suffers the worst blanket of smog in its history. The giant California city is shrouded by the ugly mist, dangerous to health and traffic. California, 1943. It was a growing problem and still a mystery. Everyone knew something had to be done, and quickly. The haze called smog was getting worse. Burning eyes, searing throats, literally choking the life out of Californians. But what was smog? What were the health effects? And how much was too much? Where did it come from, and how do you control it? The best scientists at Caltech, the University of California, and Stanford were put to work. What they discovered set the stage for pioneering air pollution work over the next five decades, making California a world leader in the fight against smog. Scientists simulated the atmosphere in chambers until the answers came. They discovered that smog was mainly ozone gas and very small particulate matter. It came from the burning of fuels and the emission of hydrocarbon vapors, cooked under stable air in warm sunlight. It was the recipe for a toxic soup. I've been a resident of this city for 12 years. And brother, I can't take it anymore. In those early years, few understood that smog could cause permanent lung damage. Viewers suspected that it came from thousands of different air pollution sources. No one imagined that it would take the next 50 years of science and politics to make substantial progress controlling smog. It would take concerned citizens working with local and state government to pass laws that protect the public from air pollution. And it would take academia and industry working together to create innovative engineering solutions to reduce air pollution emissions. In the early years, smoke from factories was wrongly perceived as the main ingredient of smog. The city of Los Angeles was first to jump into the fight during World War II years, adopting smoke regulations. They had little effect on the smog. At the same time, officials realized that it would take more than one city standing alone to reduce smog throughout a vast air basin. They discovered that the chemistry of air pollution is complex that it knows no geographic boundaries. Smog-forming emissions from one county frequently find their way into a neighboring downwind county. The public demanded that more be done. The California legislature passed a law in 1947 allowing counties to regulate local sources of air pollution. That year, the Los Angeles Air Pollution Control District was formed, followed later by the Bay Area Air Pollution Control District and other Southern California counties. As mayor of Los Angeles, I am deeply concerned over the present smog condition. This is the time to cut out all red tape. 
I've ordered the police department to cooperate with the County Air Pollution Control Board in every manner. The air districts started their cleanup with large industrial sources of air pollution emissions, burning landfills, refineries, power plants, and factories. Later, regulations control emissions from thousands of smaller industrial sources, paint shops, plating operations, gasoline stations, boilers, and incinerators. Emissions from these sources, taken together, added up to a major portion of the smog problem. Emission controls had to be fairly applied to all kinds of air pollution sources and be cost-effective. As research progressed and California grew, a major culprit came into clearer focus. The automobile. Just about everyone owned a car, and no one wanted it to be true, but cars and trucks were to blame for much of the smog. Now everyone would make a more personal sacrifice for clean air. The legislature mandated motor vehicle emission standards for the first time, putting a limit on smog-forming gases that pass out the tailpipe. A record was set today for the longest duration of hazardous air in the history of Los Angeles, and the smog conditions will be just as bad tomorrow. Everyone, no matter how physically fit, is being warned to stay inside and take it easy whenever possible. Local air pollution districts were not enough. A coordinated statewide effort to fight air pollution was needed. In 1959, the legislature passed laws making California the first state to establish air quality standards based on the public health effects of smog. This was a crucial first step, figuring out how much air pollution is too much. To implement the statewide fight, the legislature created the Air Resources Board, or ARB, in 1967. The board was given the job of controlling air pollution from cars, trucks, and other mobile sources of air pollution. ARB was also directed to coordinate the efforts of the local air quality districts. ARB set to work, requiring auto manufacturers to build cleaner running vehicles, less hydrocarbons, less oxides of nitrogen, and less carbon monoxide. Industry met the challenge. First, cars had to have positive crankcase ventilation valves. Later, every car had to have a catalytic converter. Vapor recovery nozzles became mandatory at gas stations. Leaded gasoline was phased out. Low sulfur fuel oil and diesel fuel were phased in. Cars ran ever cleaner through the 1970s. But even as cars and industry polluted less, smog levels declined only slightly. Between 1950 and 1980, 13 million more people called California home. And most of them drove cars or trucks. They drove more and they drove further. The downtown Los Angeles skyline was shrouded in smog again today. Commuters driving into the city saw it slowly emerge from a dense gray haze. Millions of people are coughing and 
wheezing their way through the worst October smog attack in almost a decade. All through the morning, the eyes had been riveted on the instruments. AQMD officials waiting to see if the smog levels would rise high enough to trigger still another second stage alert. Finally, the answer came. This is the South Coast Air Quality Management District. A second stage episode health advisory for Occident has been attained. The maximum hourly average contaminant concentration is 0.39 parts per million in the East San Gabriel Valley, area number 9. Air quality planners and government agencies had no choice. They would have to design tougher rules to keep up with explosive population growth and more air pollution. The effort involved in drawing up the smog rules in the first place has been enormous. It's a task that has taken several years. And now it's obvious that the job of working to comply with those rules will be equally as large. As before, California led the nation and the world, developing new strategies to reduce smog levels. To protect public health, it was the only choice we had. Ah, good to get out in the open air. And I wish it wasn't so smoggy. Looks to me like the air is so messed up, we won't even be able to breathe someday. Open breeze. Excuse me, I didn't catch that. Open breeze. During the 80s and 90s, California cars became the world's cleanest running cars. Computers controlled the engines, fuel, and exhaust systems. Smog check made sure the equipment worked. California skies began to clear. The choking, burning haze that once blighted Los Angeles began to thin. Despite millions more people, cars, trucks, and more industry, California air quality was getting better. In the 90s, cleaner burning gasoline was introduced. It was the air quality equivalent of eliminating the pollution from 3.5 million cars. Air quality got even better. L.A. smog alerts went from 148 in 1970 to only one in 1997. Smog alerts in the San Francisco Bay Area disappeared. The public had demanded that something be done about smog. It was clear the system was working. State and local government working with academia and industry, making measurable progress in the fight to protect public health. Much has been accomplished over 50 years, protecting public health while allowing for economic growth. The air is cleaner, but not clean enough. Unhealthy levels of air pollution, violating state and federal standards, are still with us. It is clear that transportation must pollute less. With more people driving, with even more cars, more trucks, reaching clean air goals will require even more innovative solutions. 100 years after the golden age of the internal combustion car comes the electric vehicle. In the future, turn of the 21st century EV cars may look as quaint as the first cars of the 20th century. The California Air Resources Board is working with auto and battery manufacturers to chart the future of personal transportation. Other areas show promise. Fuel cells, cleaner running trucks, and consumer products. But California will need more than electric vehicles and technology to clear California skies.
Smart consumer choices, such as carpooling and alternative transportation, will matter more than ever. Public support for air quality programs will be crucial for success. Once again, California can take a pioneering lead, watched around the world in the fight against air pollution. Clean air, it's up to us. Well, that video gives you, again, uh, uh, a little bit of a historical reference uh, of the Clean Air Act and kind of the historical uh, footage helps us kind of realize that, in fact, in our history, uh, things haven't been all the way they are today. Uh, with that, we'll finish up our uh, environmental regulation and law lecture. Uh, next time, we'll finish up the course, actually, with an examination of the frontiers of environmental toxicology. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks. <laughs>